My first full-time job in ministry happened the summer I graduated from college. I was 22 years old, and I was hired to be the youth minister at a small town church. If you do the math, that means that I was um, four or slightly more years older than the youth that I had been given charge of their souls, their spiritual growth, and their lives. I didn't know what I was doing. And honestly, I don't know what that church was doing hiring me to do it. We did a lot of things in that youth group because I didn't know better. We went on a mission trip once where I, I didn't have a plan for what we were going to do in mission when we got there. And we stayed at a place that didn't have access to showers for four days. We had an overnight lock-in at the church where it, it slipped my mind to ask any parents to stay overnight and help out. So it was just me and a couple of college friends and a church full of teenagers. And because I didn't know any better, I really assumed that leading a Bible study with youth meant we were going to study the Bible together. I, I didn't know that I was supposed to entertain them or play games or watch videos of someone talking to us about the Bible. I thought Bible study meant that you studied the Bible. And instead of picking a part of the Bible or a book of the Bible, I just thought we would read the Bible, the whole thing, from cover to to cover. Did I mention I was new to this thing? And that's how uh, we started a program called Disciple Bible Study for Youth, for teenagers. And this church was in a tiny town. It, it was a mix, an interesting mix of families that lived on farms, a couple of trailer parks, a, a brand new gated community with a large golf course and McMansions going up every week, one larger than the next, larger than the next. And I had all those kids from all those families scrambled together in one youth group. And partially because the town was so small, anything that happened at church, they all showed up. There was no other show in town besides the church. And that, and that was how I convinced seven high school kids to spend every Tuesday night reading through the entire Bible with me for a whole school year. I mean, that's not entirely true. I didn't convince them. They weren't there because of me. Most of them weren't even there because they wanted to study the Bible, really. I'm pretty sure at least two of the boys, um, Daniel, the preacher's son, and Ronnie, who lived on a farm outside of town, were there because they had a crush on the same girl. Um, Allison, who was known for her beauty both inside and out, and also known for the fact that a small flock of boys followed her wherever she went. And when she signed up for Bible study, there was an immediate spike in attendance by participants of the male persuasion. Um, they weren't the only ones that were there with mixed motives. There was Audrey, who I was pretty sure was there to get away from how tough things were at home at night. And there was Lizzie, whose parents were forcing her to attend. She had decided she wasn't a Christian. She didn't believe in God anymore, so her parents made her come. They said that Bible study and my leadership was their last hope for their 17-year-old daughter's faith. No pressure. And then, then there was Justin. He was easily the quietest kid in the whole group. He really only talked when he and I were alone in the car together. I would, I would drive to pick him up, and we would have a little bit of a ride together at a church, and then I would drop him off after Bible study at night. He talked more in the car than he did in the entire two hours with the group. He lived on a long gravel road that backed up to the rich neighborhood's golf course, but it wasn't in the rich neighborhood. 
This gravel road was lined with double-wide trailers with porches that had been built and tacked onto the front of them. Old pickup trucks on blocks were in their front yards, rusting away. And the further you drove down that gravel road, the more dilapidated the trailers got. And Justin lived at the very end of that road in the worst address. I always prayed that he would be waiting on the front porch when I arrived to pick him up, because if he wasn't, I would have to turn off the car, get out, and walk up the steps. And when I did, a pack of a dozen small dogs would appear out of nowhere, barking wildly and nipping at my ankles as I tried to ring the doorbell. And I wasn't really sure why anyone needed a doorbell with a pack of a dozen dogs to announce every visitor's arrival, and they did. But Justin and I had a lot of really great talks in the car on those drives down the gravel road and into town to church. Some of them were about his excitement about the football team, about the possibility of an athletic scholarship to college, how he might be the first member of his family to go away to college. Sometimes he'd talk about how his mom worked five jobs, Sometimes he'd talk about his stepdad's drinking. And on one of those trips, I looked down and noticed that his legs were covered with insect bites, scratched raw. And he confided in me that it had been pretty crowded and pretty loud in his house lately. So he had been sleeping in the wooden shed behind the house, the place where the pack of dogs also slept. No air conditioning. He would do his homework and his Bible study by flashlight. It was okay, he said. It's just that it was, you know, it was pretty warm in Texas. And the dogs had a pretty bad case of fleas. And I know you're probably not supposed to have favorites in ministry, but Justin was mine. The others, it seemed, they'd all be okay. But our weekly conversations in the car, I thought I might be the only grown-up who was showing much care for Justin's future. And it made me feel more grown up and more significant to think I might make a difference in this one life. He would open up on those long drives, but as soon as we turned into the church parking lot, he would clam up again and be quiet for the whole Bible study session. And if Justin was the quietest kid in the group, then Lee definitely made up for him several times over. Lee was the last one to sign up for our group, a late edition, the eighth disciple to study in our class. I had announced in church that this was a senior high Bible study for high school kids only. I didn't even think I had to say that because, you know, I didn't think any junior high kids would be interested in coming two hours every Tuesday night to read through the Bible. But one did. Little red-headed Lee with his high squeaky voice who liked to annoy the senior high boys he ran up to me after youth group one meeting on Sunday and told me that he wanted to join the Bible study, and I told him no. He would have to wait until high school to study the Bible. <laughs> and, and I thought that when you told a 13-year-old no, that they would listen. But he asked again the next week, and he asked the next week, and the next week until I told him to stop asking, so he did. Finally, he gave up. So I thought. And then one week he came up to me and I said, don't even ask Lee. And he said, no, I have a question for you. Miss Jessica, Miss Jessica, how does that beast in Revelation wear 10 crowns when it only has seven heads? And I just stared at him. 
That got my attention. I said, how do you know about that beast with seven heads? He said, well, I had been reading Revelation every night at bedtime, and I love all the gory monsters and stuff. He said, I probably read it about 10 times, but I just cannot figure that beast out. And then he opened his notebook, and he showed me drawing after drawing of the book of Revelation and how he couldn't figure out how to get 10 crowns on seven heads. And that was it. That kid was in Bible study. Any 13-year-old who reads Revelation for light bedtime reading deserves to come to Bible study, even if he's the youngest by far. And let me tell you that he was more dedicated to the study than most of the high school kids. And so the first week of the study, we sat around that table, those who were eager to be there and those who were reluctant to be there and those who were trying to impress a girl. And we started by reading out loud in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We learned right away that God had his work cut out for him in creation. Things were dark and chaotic and messy and empty and God's first words were let there be light. And what I could not have known that first Tuesday night was how much those eight kids needed to hear about God's light. How much we would learn about each other over the course of a year, how chaotic and empty and dark their lives would be, and how desperately we needed God, me too. And that from the very beginning of that story, from the very first sentence, God had something that we desperately needed. And we also learned that God started the world in a garden, and I think that appealed to some of the country kids, some of the ones that lived on a farm, that they knew from experience that in a garden on a farm, people's actions affect others around them, that if you forgot your chores, your whole livelihood or the lives of your animals or your whole family would be affected by the consequences. And so when we learned that Adam and Eve messed up, it was no surprise that everything else broke too. That really every time the humans messed up, chaos and emptiness and darkness returned. But that every time God showed up to light the darkness and fill the emptiness and order the chaos. And it seemed like a lot of the Old Testament was about God's people messing up and needing his help. And sometimes they got it, they saw it, but a lot of time they goofed off. And I yelled. And sometimes they didn't even do their reading that week. And then somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament, things started to drag a little bit. And I'll be honest, it wasn't the middle of the Old Testament. It was really the beginning of the Old Testament where things started to drag. And that happens sometimes when you read all the way through the Bible. Lee kept complaining that we weren't in Revelation yet. And where were the cool dragons and all their heads? And we kept telling him to be quiet and plowing on through. And I can remember one Tuesday night in particular, we were in the book of Judges. And there was some grumbling, and there were passing notes under the table. That, that's what people did before text messages. <laughs> they wrote messages down on paper. And you had to put it under the table. There was no, like, phone buzzing. And a couple of them may have even nodded off and fallen asleep a few times. And we were in the middle of a particularly repetitive part of Judges when Lee, the little red-headed squeaky voice, junior high pipsqueak, piped up all of a sudden. I mean, woke us all up. He said, wait a minute. Wait a minute, we just read this. 
didn't we just read this? Read what, I said. We said that phrase. The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was on the last page, too. It was on the page before that. Here it is again. The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Lee, because he would just talk until you made him stop, he continued. He said, in the last chapter, people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and bad things happened. And they needed God's help, and they cried out to him, and he came to rescue them, and things were great. But then they took their eyes off the Lord. Why did they do that, he said. They keep screwing up whenever their eyes are taken off the Lord. And the people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and bad things happened, and they needed God's help, and God came to rescue them. It's the same thing over and over again. And his voice was getting higher and squeakier and madder. I'm getting tired of this, he said. Isn't there some other story? And there was one of those moments. You can't script this. You can't make it up. It's not written in the teacher's guide. Because we all, you know, laughed for a minute at how red in the face our little group mascot was getting about the Bible. And then there was deep silence. And no one dared to break it because we were all thinking the same thing. There was no other story. We had read this before. It was happening again and again and again. God's people are in trouble. They need his rescue. They cry out to him. He always comes through. He always rescues. He brings them out of Egypt. He returns them from exile. He rescues them from oppressors or famine or sword or themselves, really. And they are grateful. And then they take their eyes off the Lord and it starts all over again. And they think they can do it their own way, that they don't need God, that there's something else that's better or prettier, just, I don't know, more physically present to look at than God. And they mess things up again and again. And they need God's help and cry out to him. And, and this wasn't just the story of the book that we were reading. We were all going through this story. Every week they were telling these stories of things that happened in their own lives where they were taking their eyes off of God and reaping the consequences and needing God's rescue. And it wasn't just their story, it was my story too. I said this was my first full-time ministry job, but I had worked part-time for a church while I was in college for a year in youth ministry. It had seemed like a great church with a great senior pastor who had talked up the great things in ministry we would do together, and so we, I worked there for a year. But once I got past that leader's sort of Sunday morning mask, it turns out that ministry was more like an empire to him, where he was building attendance and buildings and making a name for himself, and boy, things were crumbling on the inside. And when that pastor fell off the pedestal that I had put him on, I realized I couldn't do my job anymore, and I figured out that I was following him in ministry and not God, and that I didn't know how to do ministry anymore it wasn't a person I was following. So I left that church. I thought I left the church in general. I was, I was on my way into a career in a different um, kind of field when this church called and I needed a job. And so I had landed there and I was getting saved again and learning to follow the one who was supposed to be on the throne every Tuesday night in the middle of a group of high school kids. Um, Jesus showed up in that group, not just figuratively. It, it was spring when we hit the New Testament. 
Jesus was born the week of Valentine's Day. And it seemed odd to read the Christmas story without all the lights and trees and tinsel, but in a way it helped us to read it without all the trappings of Christmas. It helped us to hear the good news and not just breeze past it the way we did when there were lights and decorations. And Jesus grew up and we noticed that everything he touched started to look a lot like the garden back at the beginning. Everywhere there was sickness, he healed it. Everywhere there was emptiness, he filled it. Everywhere there was darkness, he lit it. Jesus, we decided, was all about doing those things that God had done in Genesis 1. And it was around this time that Lizzie, whose parents had forced her to become because she was no longer a Christian, confided in me that she just might believe in God after all. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. Like maybe I wasn't just wasting my time every Tuesday night in this little church Sunday school classroom. Like maybe I was supposed to be teaching people the Bible after all. Maybe I was actually good at this ministry thing. And then one Tuesday afternoon, I drove down the long gravel road to Justin's house, and he wasn't on the porch. And I got out of the car and braved the pack of flea-bitten, ankle-biting dogs, and I rang the doorbell, and his mother's face appeared at the screen door and told me that he wasn't coming, that he wasn't there, that he was in jail. And she said it so matter-of-factly. It was like he was out for a walk. He was 17. Justin had, in fact, spent the weekend with some friends who weren't very good friends. He was one of those kids who was a great follower. He went to football practice, and he followed all the plays. He came to church, and he followed all the kids at youth group. But this particular weekend, he had followed the wrong crowd. They had decided that what would go well with their late-night sleepover shenanigans was some beer. So they had taken a couple of four-wheelers and ridden down to a convenience store that they knew was closed in the country. They had thrown a brick through the plate glass window and climbed in and helped themselves to several cases of beer. There was just one little flaw in their plan. When they drove away through the muddy field, they left tracks that led straight to the house where they were all staying that night. And when the police arrived, all they had to do was follow the tracks to track them down. And they were all arrested. Justin was 17, so they decided to charge him as an adult. And while all the other kids' parents showed up and bailed them out, he was the last one still sitting in the county jail. None of his family showed up. And in a small town, word travels fast, and already some parents were saying he shouldn't be allowed back at the youth group. He shouldn't let that kid in Bible study. What a bad influence on our very good kids. And I found myself doing something that I didn't know was part of youth ministry. I was showing up at the county jail and learning to use that little phone to communicate to somebody on the other side of the glass. And instead of driving to pick him up on the dirt road, I was driving to visit Justin in jail and having conversations through the glass about Jesus. Some of the best and deepest conversations I have had to this day between a 22-year-old and a 17-year-old on a phone with glass between us. And they let us bring him a Bible, and he started reading it like his life depended on it. And he told me that God had really done a transforming work in him while he was in jail waiting, and that he felt called to be a preacher when he got out, because maybe he could reach people like him. And when his hearing came, the pastor and I stood up for him, and since it was his first offense, he was released into our custody with probation. His family didn't show up. 
And he didn't want to go home because it was Tuesday. He wanted to go to Bible study. And that night we opened the book of Matthew and Jesus was telling a story. And one of the girls read it aloud. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than the 99 that did not wander off. And I looked up and Justin made eye contact with me over the other kids' heads and he mouthed, thank you. His life seemed totally transformed. I mean, he had always been a great follower, one who followed the crowd, but now he seemed like he was leading the pack in following Jesus. And even the grown-ups were amazed at the change in him. And on Youth Sunday, he stood in the pulpit of that little church and gave his testimony of transformation and calling to ministry. And the congregation cried and clapped. And then he called me up and he pulled a bouquet of flowers out of that pulpit and he handed them to me and he told the whole church that it was all because of me that his life had changed. And he gave me a hug and everyone clapped again and then we all sang Amazing Grace and went and ate fried chicken. And I thought, man, if this is ministry, I can do this. I'm actually good at this. I have got this thing down. I saved a kid. I think I'm ready to take on the world. And in two weeks, Justin was back in jail. He had gone for his probation meeting and failed the drug test. The same friends with the four-wheelers had taken him out to smoke pot the night before his drug test. And this kid, he was a great follower. He just hadn't quite figured out how to be consistent in who he followed. And that week, I spiraled into the deepest depression that I have known before or since in ministry. I climbed into my bed at home where I was living with my mom. I crawled under the covers and I tried to think of ways that I could never come out again. Maybe I could quit my job or my life. Maybe I could just run away and go to grad school without saying goodbye. I had failed. I couldn't face the church or the youth or the parents right after youth Sunday, come on. I had lost the one kid that it was up to me to save. I, I, I. And I remember how long I stayed under there feeling sorry for myself in that tiny little world that revolved around me. But eventually I heard God's voice. And what God said was not exactly comforting. If you want the credit, he said, you're going to have to take the blame too. If it's you that saves these kids, it's going to be you that loses them. Let them put you on a pedestal, and the fall from that pedestal is going to be just as hard as the view was beautiful. You can't do ministry for the praise, because if you are in it for what people say about you, then you're going to have to own the criticism too, and you can't handle it. God can be brutally honest sometimes. And under the covers there, I confessed what I already knew, that there was nothing in me that could save anyone, not even myself, that I was going to have to depend on God for all of it. Day to day, 
I mean, moment to moment, second to second. Because I really had no idea what I was doing. And 20 years of ministry and a seminary degree later, that has not changed. So I, I went back to work, and I went to Tuesday night Bible study, but I was different. And I don't think I've ever really been the same. And at the end of April, we got to the book of Revelation. And we let little red-headed Lee read parts of it out loud. He had, he had drawn pictures, illustrations, and hung them up around the walls. And there was the beast. And there was the lion. And there was the lamb taped to the wall of a Sunday school classroom, surrounding us in our last Tuesday night together. And all of them were there except Justin. He never came back. He did get in touch with me a couple of years ago on Facebook, show me pictures of his kids, tell me about his job and the church that he attended, and to talk a little about what had happened all those years ago. That night, his chair was empty, and his story as unfinished as the rest of ours. And as Lee was reading aloud in his squeaky voice, he came to a place in Revelation that I think he had skipped over before all his attention had been on all those cool monsters, you know. And in characteristic Lee fashion, as he read it, maybe for the first time, he got mad at the text. He got mad at the Bible a lot. And that night, that night Lee was mad at John of Patmos. The angel had just shown John a revelation of an awesome God and all of the wonderful things surrounding him. And when John got so overwhelmed in awe, he fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel. He started worshipping that angel. And the angel said, I can't, I can't do this in Lee's high squeaky mad voice, so forgive me. The angel said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. What's wrong with him, Lee shouted. We just read this whole book. When you take your eyes off of Jesus and worship anything else, it leads to bad stuff. Don't do it, John, he yelled. We all kind of laughed, but then we kind of didn't. Don't do it he said. Don't worship the messenger. Just worship Jesus. And that was the end. The whole year in one phrase. Just worship Jesus. And it's a lesson I'm still trying to get every day. Nothing but Jesus. Not the idols. Not the bad guys. Not the good guys. Not the messenger. Not even when the messenger is you. Don't do it. Just worship Jesus. Amen.